Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. This is an important time of year in the movie industry, always was. It's when movie companies released their big family films, when families actually had time to see them. It's when they released their prestige films, because they'd be remembered by people voting for the Oscars. It's when studios would know if they were ending the year in the black or technicolor red. But first COVID, then streaming, then a writer's and actor's strike, and then came mergers, and then came studios killing finished films for tax breaks, and now what exactly? And what does this time of year mean in the movie industry? And so many more topics to cover with Anne Hornaday, the chief film critic of The Washington Post. Hi, Anne. How are you? I'm great, Gil. Thank you. It's so good to have you with us. Boy, the state of the film business. We've had the first total flop Marvel film, the first real dud from Pixar. Uh, things Things are changing. They are, and it could be. You know, it's it's sort of dangerous to point to 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 um, confuse correlation with causation, if you know what I mean. Like it just like so many things happened in the last year or two that just that, like you said, it's just a series of these body blows. But I do think that one one factor we're dealing with is exhaust. You know, franchise exhaustion and superhero fatigue, and just you know, that Marvel Cinematic Universe was so beautifully executed in that first, you know, that whatever you want to call that, the first tranche. Um, and now it's just this case of them going back and back and back and back. And it cannot, to my mind, it can't help but to result in diminishing returns. So it's I'm not surprised, actually, that things have plateaued and maybe even plummeted because you just cannot keep doing that and doing it and doing it over and over and over again and hitting those same beats without 
the audience, you know, finally figuring it out and, and, and not going anywhere. Yeah, and, and also it doesn't invite new moviegoers in, even though the films are available and streaming platforms and all of that. Still, when you hear from people, oh, the 12th Marvel film is, is really great, but you have to see the first 11 to understand what's going on. You know, most people are just going to go, yeah, okay, so I'm not coming in at, at film 12 or 24 or whatever they're up to now, and they just start to bypass it. Right. I think that's exactly right. And then look at the phenomenon of the year, Barbenheimer, two, you know, one-off. Um, you know, yes, granted, Barbie was a product placement movie, and it was based on I, you know, intellectual property, IP, in this case, the doll. Um, so it had all the markings of something that could have been just a cheap kind of, you know, exploitation picture in a way, but it was executed with such originality by Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie and the great Ryan Gosling um, that it just turned into a bona fide phenomenon. And that's not because of necessarily just the Barbie of it all. That's because of what Greta Gerwig did with Barbie. And the same can be said for Oppenheimer. I mean, who would have thought that this really intellectual, heady, densely layered, gnarly movie about a nuclear scientist from the 1940s would become the must-see movie of the summer. But there you have it. And I just I just thought that was really great news, that these two utterly original movies became the hot tickets. You know, that, that to me is a really optimistic sign that audiences still want to go to stuff like that. It, there, there were interesting things, and and talking about the Barbie film, I, I don't want to go into it over and over again because everybody went over it over and over again when it came out. But what was interesting is at a time when so many, especially franchise films, are trying consciously to you know honor the franchise and all of that. This film comes out, and the the guy who runs Mattel, when Greta Gerwig said, you know brought the script to them and and she said to her co-writer said this is a great script too bad it'll never get made because it was making fun of mattel it was making fun of their packaging it was making fun of of the executives making fun of the history and mattel went yeah sure we just we we, we just want a good movie which is really standing a lot of what we've seen about the way corporations run movie franchises just stood it on its head yeah I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, all credit to them for having the guts and the sense of humor and the confidence, you know, the, the confidence uh, to just let her go. I mean, how do you sell that whole dream sequence of Ken and the army of Ken invading the Malibu beach on inflatable horses? Like, and then from that fantasy sequence, breaking into a dream ballet, like how, who's ever going to green light that? And they did. And, and it was just delightful. You know, it was just bananas and delightful and just, you know, inspired lunacy all around. It was just great. Oppenheimer was incredibly successful just to give that one film its due before we move on. It's interesting though, there a lot of the criticism of it was some of the same criticism Maestro, the Leonard Bernstein film is getting now, which is from people who wanted the film to be about something else. With Oppenheimer, people are saying, well, there wasn't enough about what happened to Japan and all that. And, and you know, the answer was, no, it's about Oppenheimer. It's not actually fully about the bomb. Maestro is kind of suffering the same thing in a way. It's about specifically 
his relationship with his wife, this, this bisexual man who got married, had kids, but still carried on at the same time with same-sex relationships. It's about that. It's not, this is the story of his conducting. Here's how Metropolis introduced him to Mahler or anything like that. And it's getting a lot of, you know, burn because of a film that nobody intended to make. True. And I really hope, I mean, that's sort of our, our job to me, our jobs as critics is to prepare people for that experience and manage those expectations and say, yes, this is not the Wikipedia entry that you might want. Um, it's going to send you back to Wikipedia and to other biographies, which is great. You know, it's like if you want to learn more about this fascinating individual. But this is, like you said, it's a very personal, intimate, psychological portrait of this guy. And yes, there are, you know, <laughs> I always think of the, you know, the play the hit syndrome, you know, play, we want to hear West Side Story, we want to hear all those signature pieces. And there are a couple of those in the movie, but it is by far not that comprehensive, um, you know, uh, the curriculum vitae, you know, that, that people might be craving, but there's so much more to value, you know, there's a lot to value in it without all that. I mean, just this portrait of a marriage and these two great performances from Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan and just the way Cooper directs it. I just think it's the way that it moves and the, and the kind of um, the structure of it and the sweep of it is just fascinating. I think he's a really skillful filmmaker. It's a great piece of visual storytelling and oral storytelling. So let's talk, you know, looking back at this year, looking ahead, let's, let's talk more generally about what's going on. I mentioned streaming, which is huge. Some people deciding whether to even go to a theater for a particular movie or wait till it's streaming. Well, maybe this one, I'll go to a theater. It's lots of special effects, or I just really need to be kind of there without distractions in a movie theater or, I'm, I'm fine at home and all of that. How are directors reacting? Because whether the older directors, the Scorseses, the Spielbergs and all like it or not, these are films that may be predominantly watched on a television screen. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, they, I think they've made peace with it. Look at Scorsese. <laughs> He's made this one of the biggest, you know, historical epics of the year knowing full well that it's going to be on Apple, you know, and, um, and he had already done that with the Irishman and Netflix. So it's like, I just think it's a, it's a fact of life and there's, you know, there's no real fighting it. Um, and you really just hope that, that enough people will brave. And I do think the Barbenheimer phenomenon did suggest that people still, they do crave that collective experience and the the magic is figuring out what experience they want to have. And it's not necessarily just special effects. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the right combination of a human story. And I think stars probably still matter. People are wondering about that, but I think they probably do. Um, but yeah, I know it's, there's no doubt that the, that the calculus has changed, you know? And I think when you ask how directors are feeling, um, I can't pretend to speak for them, but the ones that I have spoken with, they're, they're just sort of plunging ahead. You know, they're, they're just adapting as quickly as they can to these new realities. We'll have more with Washington Post chief film critic Ann Hornaday coming up. This is the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio.
Welcome back. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking about the film business, holiday movies, and more with Washington Post chief film critic Anne Hornaday. The first movie that I saw this year that just made me happy, you know, where I just thought, oh, wow. You know, I kind of thought they had stopped making movies like this but they're still doing it. And the first movie that made me feel that way was Air. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA all-star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. I got it. I found him. Who's that, Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. Who's the plan? Michael Jordan. This is the movie about the invention of the Nike Air Jordan sneaker. And again, like Barbie, a product placement movie, right? It's it's about the brand. It was sold as a brand movie, but it was directed by Ben Affleck in just a terrific way. He plays Phil Knight, the head of Nike, Um, Jason Bateman, Matt Damon play supporting, just terrific supporting performances in this movie. And then for the win, in swoops Viola Davis as Michael Jordan's mom, who seals the deal for the sneaker, and she just elevates the film. I mean, it is just one of the, she's always good, but this is just one of those movies where it's just thoroughly entertaining. It's very enlightening in terms of how that whole sneaker thing happened. It's funny, it's observant, it's timely, and it's just, you know, it's just one of those really good movies. So I would point to that one as my, uh, as the first of the year that really made me made me happy. And let's make at least one other that, you know, we might have missed. Well, you know, the one I noticed over the summer when I would be in church, for example, or at a party or at a picnic, people would come up to me and say, I just saw past lives. And with the look on their face of utter sheer joy. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. This is a movie by a woman named Celine Song. It's her first feature. She's the writer-director about a young woman who, whose family emigrates from South Korea when she's young and sort of separates her from her very best friend, who's a little boy. And it follows her trajectory. She she moves. She ultimately moves to New York. She wants to become a playwright. She marries an American guy. They're living in the village, you know, having a great life. And then this little boy from her past, who's now a grown man, gets back in touch. And she's faced with this sort of choice to explore what might have been with this this uh, friend from her childhood. It's very delicate. It's very quiet. It I dare say it. It's a little not slow. It's just very subtle. And, and unbeknownst to you as a viewer, she's just working on you emotionally. And it culminates in an incredibly powerful final scene that is just devastating in the best possible way, where you just think, oh, I didn't see it coming. I mean, she it's really masterfully done. Um, and a wonderful cast with Greta Lee and John Magaro and um, uh, Leo Yu. It's just a terrific movie and, and uh, again, a real audience pleaser and one that people might have overlooked. Okay, let's look at when I first introduced you this year, I talked about how this is the time of year where classically, although the movie business has been turned upside down, 
movie companies would release big family films or just big films they think are going to be Oscar nominees. Actually, I should ask you before I even get to that, are the Oscars in this world where people, fewer and fewer people are watching uh, award shows, are, are the Oscars still a big thing? Uh, we'll see. I mean, they are kind of losing, it seems like they've been losing audience. And I, I think this year, I mean, it's it's connected to the idea of our movies still a big thing. Are movies still a cultural currency? Are they still the campfire that we all want to gather around? And again, Barbenheimer proved that they can be. Taylor Swift proved that they can be. Of course, that's the Taylor Swift of it all. But, you know, people love to go and, and see things together and re, and have an emotional connection together. So um, as long as that's true, then, yes, the Oscars do have the potential to still be a big thing. But the Oscars, I think the problem with the Oscars as an award show or all award show is that, you know, back in the in the in the 50s, you weren't likely to see Cary Grant as some as Cary Grant, as some person who is, you know, not in a movie, just even saying a few words like, thank you. Right. You never saw Clark Gable and people like that. Now, when a movie comes out, they're on 97 TV shows and 14 million podcasts, and it's just not the same. Oh, there's Clark Gable in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't have the same impact. You're not wrong. You know, and I, and I also feel like I, I might sound like a nerd, but this, you know, yes, we want them to be irreverent and we want them to be to take jabs at each other or, you know, at themselves in terms of show business. But I almost feel like it's become, you know, that has been taken way too far and, and it's almost become cheapening. You know, it's like you um, you want it to have some dignity. You know, you want the Oscars um, to still have, I don't know, some class, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I, I feel like that they've been so eager to please and to kind of puncture their own myth that they might have uh, they might have taken it, you know, too far and and um, convinced audiences that they are silly and, and not worth, you know, the, the candle. So we'll see what happens. This year. I mean, I actually thought that the, the actual telecast this year, meaning for last year's movies, was wonderful. It was very entertaining. It moved at a great clip. Um, I thought Jimmy Kimmel was fabulous as a host, and he's going to come back. So we'll see. Okay, so let's talk about the holiday openings, the things. Once everybody gets past, you know, the holiday celebration, and the guests are gone, and the the presents have been returned, or, or whatever. What are the holiday opening films that that are being talked about that you might be looking forward to, and all of that? The one I'm looking forward to the most, and I saw it at Toronto this year, and I couldn't wait to tell people about it. It's called American Fiction. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? Thank you. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. It is another first-time film by a guy named Cord Jefferson, and he has adapted a novel that was written by Percival Everett um, about an African-American author and scholar who is fed up with seeing certain kinds of narratives being marketed as, quote-unquote, the black experience, and he decides to kind of play a joke on the publishing world and deliver a really hyperbolic, parodic, um, you know, over-the-top manuscript that just, you know, traffics in every kind of cliche. And the, the, that character is played by the great Jeffrey Wright, who is 
always so good and he's practically the best thing in every movie he's in, but he's never really had the chance to have this kind of leading role until this film. And he is absolutely fantastic. It's funny. It is sharply observant and satirical, but it's also really warm. And there's a family comedy drama going on under the surface that's really touching. And it just, it kind of works on every level, you know, both as social commentary, but also just a very warm, welcoming, um, uh, affecting family dramedy that, uh, that is just, it's, it's just charming. So that's my favorite one of the, of the holiday season. Okay. And Anne Hornaday, personally, favorite Christmas movie? It's got to be The Man Who Came to Dinner. My man, Monty Woolley. Ah, pecan butternut fun. Oh, my, you mustn't eat candy, Mr. Whiteside. It's very bad for you. My great-aunt Jennifer ate a whole box of candy every day of her life. She lived to be 102, and when she'd been dead three days, she looked better than you do now. And and it, it I think, is a film, if, if people haven't seen it, because it's a film from decades ago, might really be able to relate to this time of year because it's about an obnoxious person who comes to stay and never leaves. <laughs> yeah. Well played, maestro. Speaking of maestro, well played, my friend. Um, this is a classic, and it's overlooked, but... Um, it's with the great Marty Woolley, who is, you know, speaking of the New Yorker, he's from the Algonquin Roundtable era, um, who plays an irascible author who's on the speaking circuit. And he breaks his leg and has to spend the Christmas with this kind of dowdy Midwestern family who are really lovely, but he's very hypercritical of them. And uh, Betty Davis plays his secretary, who's sort of a salt of the earth type. And it's hilariously funny. It's a screwball comedy, lots of physical comedy. There's penguins, uh, there's um, a Jimmy Durante cameo, there's a little romance, there's just about everything you'd ever want in a Christmas movie in, by my life. And the final question, the question that takes over the internet every year at this time, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I'm going to just go out on a limb and I'm going to say... It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home soon? Well, uh, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. And a hard man to kill. The question is its own answer, yes. There you go. Anne Hornaday said no, she is the chief film critic for the Washington Post. And as always, thank you so much. And very happy holidays. Happy New Year to you. We've got more of the winter holiday special just ahead from CBS News Radio. Welcome to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Once Santa got a reputation for giving gifts and riding from house to house in a sleigh, someone needed to figure out what drove that sleigh, and that someone was someone we just don't know. We know where the reindeer were first found out. It was from an anonymous illustrated poem in a book that came out in New York in 1821 titled The Children's Friend, A New Year's Present to the Little Ones from 5 to 12. Inside that book is a poem called Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, and it not only shows a reindeer for the first time running the sleigh, though just one, but it's the first to tell us specifically Santa came on Christmas Eve, tying gifts directly to Christmas rather than the feast day of St. Nicholas on December 6th. Yep, but for this poem, you would have had 19 fewer shopping days. Just two years later, also in New York, Clement Clark Moore, 
perhaps inspired by that earlier work and also by his job as a professor at a theological seminary, wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas, A Night Before Christmas, which not only rounds out the story of how Santa visits, but increases the number of reindeer to eight and gave them all names. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, that poem also printed anonymously, and Moore, a slaveholder and an opponent of Thomas Jefferson, just did not want to be known for the fluffy, lovey-dovey stuff he wrote for his family, and it was decades before he owned up to the work being his. Which brings us to the ninth reindeer, Rudolph, for which we must give thanks to Montgomery Ward. That chain of stores and catalog sales was the biggest competitor to Sears for more than a century until it went belly up in 2001. The store used to give away coloring books to kids at Christmas, but in 1939, after a few years of buying the rights to already existing stories, the company got the idea of saving money by telling one of its own employees to write something. That guy was a man in the advertising department named Robert L. May, who sat in his downtown Chicago office flummoxed about what to write until he watched the fog roll in from Lake Michigan and thought, oh, how would Santa get around that? And that was the aha moment and Rudolph was born. He took it to his bosses, and right away, they hated it. They hated the red nose. That was a symbol of drunks, like comedian W.C. Fields. He talked them out of that, but then the name he gave the reindeer, Rollo. No way. May said, what about Reginald? No. Nope. Uh, what about Rudolph? Well, okay, they said, but they still hated the red nose. Until they saw the drawings May's friend in the advertising department, Denver Gillen, came up with. Cute always wins. More than two million Rudolph books were handed out, and from that day on, he was utterly forgotten. It was eight years later that a publisher asked May if they could reprint the story and if he'd write a sequel, and he said, don't ask me, Montgomery Ward owns Rudolph. But May went to his boss at the store who figured, how much money could there be in something we gave away two million copies of for free, and gave all the rights to May for free. This is perhaps the first of the business decisions that led to the store's demise. In 1947, the book came out. In 1948, a cartoon. It was the day before Christmas, and all through the hills, the reindeer were playing, enjoying the spills of skating, and coasting, and climbing the willows, and hopscotch. Poor Rudolph, where most reindeer's noses are brownish and tiny, Rudolph's was red, very large, and quite shiny. In 1949, May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, had the idea of turning it into a song. Now, like May, Marks was Jewish, but he had a knack for writing hit songs about Christmas, like A Holly Jolly Christmas. Have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer. Marks took the song to Bing Crosby, who said no. So did Dinah Shore, and then a stroke of genius. Marx took it to the singing cowboy Gene Autry, who had written his own hit, Here Comes Santa Claus, to sing at a Christmas parade and had a huge success with it. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Blixen and Blixen and all his reindeers pulling on the reins. Autry was also an interesting guy. He asked his followers to subscribe to his Cowboys Code that had things like the cowboy must not advocate or possess racially or religiously intolerant ideas. Now that would create controversy with some people today. In the 1930s, it was incredible. 
Though at first he questioned whether it was really that good a song, the story of a reindeer bullied because he was different, who becomes a hero because of that difference, was Catnip for Autry, who also had a popular CBS radio show to highlight his music. The record was a smash hit, and by virtue of being number one on the Billboard chart of January 7, 1950, the first number one song of the 1950s. And to this day, of all Christmas songs, only White Christmas has sold more copies than Rudolph. So, as all the other reindeer said, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you go down in history. As he has, with a little help from a department store, two guys down in advertising, a brother-in-law, and a cowboy. Welcome back to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Hanukkah is big in America, in Jewish homes, but also in homes where an intermarried couple lives. And there are many of those, and many people now have a menorah and a Christmas tree. Hanukkah was a historically interesting, but otherwise pretty minor Jewish holiday. It did not have any major religious significance, had some historical significance, but there's no prayer service. You don't get the day off from school, even if you go to a yeshiva. And yet it went from lighting candles, playing a game, and not much else, into menorahs in the town square in a gift-giving frenzy to rival Christmas. So how did that happen? Jonathan Sarna is professor of Jewish history at Brandeis University. Good to have you with us. Nice to be with you again. Hanukkah, it's even a thing at the White House now, though, again, compared with holidays like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, it's no real big deal in the Jewish religion, except now it is. How did that start to happen? Yeah, and I, I mean, it's actually very recent that the White House has had a Hanukkah party. First, you had, uh, beginning in the late 1970s, uh, you had uh, a Hanukkah menorah that was outside and that was built by Chabad Lubavitch. And then uh, there, there were some legal discussions, but you have a Christmas tree, you ought to be able to have a menorah. And so it was approved. And then... Jimmy Carter, who had uh, stayed in the White House because of uh, the Iran-Contra affair, as it was known, there were American soldiers taken hostage, and uh, the whole thing depressed him so much he didn't leave the, the White House for weeks and weeks. But somehow he saw this menorah, and of his own volition, he went out and participated, and the picture remains, um, in the lighting of that Hanukkah menorah. And then uh, some of his successors brought the menorah into uh, the White House. There were Hanukkah celebrations, especially when um, uh, the younger Bush, as I recall it, wanted to have a faith-based agenda and make his Christmas celebrations more religious. So he created a Hanukkah party for uh, those uh, Jewish friends and supporters uh, who uh, might not have have wanted to have Christian uh, religious uh, ceremonies at a party, but were quite happy to have uh, the Hanukkah menorah lit 
and um, uh, then they even made that uh, uh, party kosher. They brought in Chabad rabbis to uh, transform the White House so that everybody could eat and enjoy kosher food, and these celebrations uh, uh, grew uh, larger and larger, and indeed a ticket uh, to the president's Hanukkah party uh, was uh, one of the most desired uh, tickets in, in Washington. Uh, an invitation meant something. Yeah, it, it was interesting that we went from Jimmy Carter, the first president to recognize Hanukkah at all, which is interesting because of the Iran hostage crisis and also, you know, working toward a Mideast peace, which involved talking to both sides, did not make him popular among American Jews. In, in fact, in 1980, when uh, he ran against uh, Ronald Reagan. He's the first Democratic president in ages to actually lose the Jewish vote. So that doesn't help him that much. And then you get, you know, uh, Clinton being the first president to light a candle, George W. Bush, the first to hold a Hanukkah party at the White House, and Obama, Trump, and Biden have continued that tradition. So this has changed and like Christmas, Hanukkah in America has changed. You know, more gifts, more cards, more commercial, more popularity. Uh, but, you know, it, in the Jewish religion, Purim used to be the big gift-giving time. It's now given way to Hanukkah. There's, there's some traditionalists aren't too happy about that. Yeah, I would say that Hanukkah gift-giving and the beginning of real public Hanukkah goes back uh, much further. It goes back to the late 19th century when Christmas commercialization appears. Naturally, Jewish children who were more traditional felt left out and a clever parent said, oh, well, actually, you're eight times as lucky as your neighbor because uh, there are eight days of Hanukkah. Uh, and so we do begin to see Hanukkah gifts, even Hanukkah cards and Hanukkah parties but in those years, there was a sense that Hanukkah was something that Jews observed internally, not on the public square, but in synagogue and home. In this shift and, and Hanukkah and the way it is celebrated and its importance, everything, there are things that we can mark with Christmas that changed. Uh, the, the whole the whole development of, of Santa Claus. So we have these specific cultural things that happened. Did anything like that happen with Hanukkah? Or it was just like, you know, this isn't too religion. It's not going to offend a lot of other people. And you get gifts. How did this get going? Well, first of all, in the late 1870s, when there's a kind of Jewish revival, uh, there really is a very well publicized uh, Hanukkah party, that, and they call it the National Jewish Revival. They use that word of Hanukkah uh, in, in, um, uh, in New York, and uh, that marks the holiday, and National serves as a reminder that there's a kind of link to the view of Judaism as uh, an ethnicity, the idea that uh, Jews may one day return to their homeland um, and Hanukkah becomes important uh, to the Zionist movement. Um, and then, as I say, the, the big change in recent years uh, really comes with presidential 
recognition of Hanukkah and the introduction of Hanukkah menorahs in public squares and Hanukkah parties and um, now even a Hanukkah menorah uh, in the White House. Remember, as late as John F. Kennedy, uh, there was a Christmas message sent out by the White House which said everybody in the world celebrates Christmas, Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. You sort of wonder what planet the speechwriter lived on, but he believed it. And lots of Americans thought Christmas is what unites us all. Uh, but by the time um, uh, we hit the Jimmy Carter years, uh, he who was the first to, to light a Hanukkah menorah, he becomes aware that there are lots of Americans who are not celebrating Christmas, and he becomes sensitive uh, to that fact and uh, changes the language of Christmas proclamations to um, uh, take consciousness of the fact that there were some Americans uh, who were not observing it, observing different holidays. Uh, so um, uh, I, I think much has changed um, uh, really over the last half century. Jonathan Sarna, I thank you so much for taking us through Hanukkah in America. Jonathan Sarna is a professor of Jewish history at Brandeis University. Thank you so much for being with us. And happy holidays. To you too. Stay with us. We'll be back with more of the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Happy holiday. This is the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus is probably the most famous answer to a letter to the editor ever published. Here's Jane Pauley on CBS Sunday Morning. Of all the letters to Santa, it's this one about Santa that stands out. You probably know it. Printed in the New York Sun in 1897. Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says... If you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, was the famous response from editor Francis P. Church. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. 120 years later, the Yes, Virginia column is the most reprinted newspaper editorial in history. Virginia O'Hanlon's handwritten note has never left her family. So written in uh, cursive. James Temple is her grandson. Her letter, as I think about it, brings back my childhood. <laughs> and Brock Rogers is her great-grandson, who keeps it in a scrapbook. As a parent of two young kids, I want them to maintain their innocence for as long as possible. And the Yes, Virginia story, the letter, the response that she got is a way to do that for them. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. O'Hanlon, who loved sharing her story, led a life of achievement. Ahead of her times, a modern woman. She earned a master's degree and doctorate in education. 
and for decades was a New York City school teacher and principal. To be a single parent, to end up with a PhD, uh, very remarkable. She died at age 81 in 1971. As for her childhood house in Manhattan, it's now home to the studio school, where her legacy is celebrated for all to see and hear. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Yes, Virginia. There is a Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Janet Rotter is head of the school. What makes it so special is the idea of curiosity, the idea of questioning, which is really at the heart of education, of humanity, of who we are. Dear editor, I'm eight years old. Brock Rogers says the letter is worth tens of thousands of dollars, but it's not for sale. Oh, no, no, that's staying in the family. <laughs> There's no price tag on that. And in a time of viral videos and instant messages, a little girl's query from many Christmases past has a permanent place in our world. It really is a story of hope, and it's a story of bringing people together. There's something there for everybody. Merry Christmas. You're listening to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.